as you unlock more um, computational capabilities, that will inspire a new generation or a new class of entrepreneurs who now see that it's possible to do certain things that they'd be interested in building that, that they would previously just not even not even bother considering because it would feel so out of the realm of possibility that they wouldn't even begin to think about those ideas. So it's interesting to think like once you have say a thousand X more performant blockchains, that just expands the design space so much that, that I think we'll just be surprised, right. By the kinds mm -hmm. of applications that people build. Uh, and it's very, very hard actually foresee them because we'd be trying to outthink an entire ecosystem of entrepreneurs. This episode is brought to you by circle the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. You've got me running solo, Santiago's out today. Uh, we are super lucky to be joined by Ariana Simpson and Ali Yalha, uh, both GPs from Andreessen Horowitz. Ali and Ariana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for here. having us. Yeah, super excited about this. Um, I want to just actually start like very big bucket, like frameworks, narratives, and then actually go into some of the more specific questions. Ali, I remember this um, tweet that you sent out in like right as DeFi summer was like ripping. I remember it was it was the network flywheel tweet. If you remember that, I'm, I'm going to ask you to pull your brain back two years here. Um, but you had the, the network flywheel and it was like uh, you have these end users come in and that's the community. They've got the vision and protocol moves in uh, that that gives value to the token that more more token value means like more productive capital which means more platform functionality which means more uh useful application i think i'm remembering this correctly then more useful applications which means more utility which means more people i think i think i'm getting the flywheel correct i just want to see like two years later you know we things that have changed since then we went through DeFi summer nfts really boomed uh, play to earn had its like moment in the sun and then kind of fell down, even though other some play to earns are, are still doing super well, Ariana, that I know you're involved with. I just want to get your update on like this network flywheel and maybe the bigger questions like your updated thesis on like the business model for blockchain based businesses. Yeah, no, that's that's a great that's a great starting point. Um, well, just to recap. So this was yeah back in 2018. This was one of our theses for how it is that you can build a network or a business that is entirely open source, that exists entirely on chain. And the paradox being that traditionally in history, businesses have always really made money by having something that is ultimately secret, that they own, that is intellectual property, or it's just like a trade secret, and that they charge charge other people for access to, or that they that allows them to do something better that other people cannot. And so it's a paradox that in crypto and in Web3, it's possible to create things, uh, it's possible to create software that is 100% open source that still somehow manages to capture value. And so if you look at something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is 100% open source. And in fact, the more widespread it is, the more value it ends up capturing. And uh, the flywheel was just an attempt at explaining how it is that that is possible. Uh, and the answer is ultimately that uh, because crypto enables you to build these canonical um instances of software that everyone coalesces around, you have a network effect. Uh, and this flywheel that, that, uh, that we talked about two years ago um, starts with an idea. It starts with the founding team of a protocol that initiates a kind of movement. And as people uh, rally around that initial movement, um, it is possible to then potentially raise money. That creates an initial value for the token that ultimately will power the network. And then once the network launches, that token creates the incentive structure that provides the network uh, its functionality. So in the case of a layer one blockchain, for example, in the case of Bitcoin, the token, the Bitcoin token uh, incentivizes miners to provide security to the network and to, and to provide the service that is actually securing the Bitcoin blockchain. The same applies to something like Ethereum, where the, the, the miners or the now validators, now that it's proof of stake, uh, perform all of the computation in the network. And so once that exists, then there's a possibility for a whole other group of people, namely application developers, to come in and to start using that functionality to actually build products that, that leverage the functionality that the network is providing. And as those products come, come alive and, and actually begin to provide something useful to end users, that reinforces the initial movement, right? The, the idea that, that started everything uh, 
uh, at the beginning. And so that brings us back to the beginning of the flywheel and sort of around we go like that, that again, reinforces the token price, which, which subsequently again, reinforces the incentives for miners, validators or participants in the network. And then that creates the possibility for even more applications and so on. Um, and I think that since then it has held up fairly well. I think that the, the only defensible moat in crypto has been uh, the network effect. There, there, there really isn't any defensibility in keeping something. If, if, it, if we're talking about protocols, there isn't any defensibility in trying to keep anything secret because you, you want broader reach. You want the you want it to become a movement, um, and there isn't really any kind of defensibility in in other things like, for example just liquidity for a DeFi protocol we've seen is is not much of a defensible mode because liquidity is very mercenary and it's quite easy uh, for incentives to get the liquidity to move from one place to another very quickly as we saw with for example the sushi swap saga so i think that ultimately the, the thing that's most important is is building this movement that creates this network effect with this flywheel and that applies for layer one blockchains it applies to to protocols that are built in layer two like like DeFi protocols or protocols of other kinds like decentralized social networks and happy to kind of dive deeper. But that is, I think, the, the broad thesis that, that we articulated back then. And I think it still, it still stands. Yeah. A lot to unpack there. Um, Ariane, I'd love to hear you just, I'd, I'd love to just, I mean, you've been investing in the space for a long time. I think your old firm was called Autonomous Partners, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Like, just, I, yep. I, I think I remember, a, I remember listening to a podcast of yours on Epicenter when you were at like BitGo in 2014. You've just been investing in the space for a really long time. Uh, and 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 building things in the space for a really long time. What what is your updated thesis right now on just what what's going on in crypto today? Well, I think that's you know you correctly articulated how we think about blockchains at sort of the infrastructure layer, and um, you know Ali is the best person to to talk more in depth about that. Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll get into it. I think what we've seen is that the thesis, rather than having changed necessarily, has expanded to include more things. And so a lot of our um, investments at this point are also at the application layer and somewhat more consumer facing than what we might have seen a number of years ago. And that was really a very sort of necessary sequence. We first needed to lay the infrastructure foundations of L1s, now L2s, um, and you know, a number of these networks needed to exist before we could start to build more consumer-facing applications that could live on top of those. And so, again, I think nowadays we're seeing a ton of activity in, for example, Web3 creator economy and um, the participation of different kinds of, of creators in a way that we've never seen before. And to return to your earlier point of business models, I think the crux that unites all of that industry is really this idea of saying the participants in these networks should be benefiting from the value that they're creating. And so it shouldn't just be the company at the center that's benefiting, but really rather the participants in the networks themselves. And so I think all of the other, you know, modifications or, or um, tweaks around business models are you know, we'll get there in terms of refining the details, but that is sort of the core idea. Um, and that I think is the most important thing that unites all of the, the things that we're looking at in Web3. Hmm. Are you guys investing more in the, in the app phase right now because you think the infrastructure phase has been like adequately built out? We've got, I mean, we, we basically had Bitcoin, then you, then you had ETH, and then you had all the, all the kind of new L1s. Uh, now you've got like the like the next wave of the new L1s, obviously. Um, do you think that the L1s are like, the L1 game is almost over? I think that's, I think that's my real question. No. Well, no, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll start and then I'll hand it to Ali. I think um, absolutely not. What, what we've seen so far is obviously a lot of progress in a really short amount of time. And I think one of the amazing things about this industry is the fact that because almost everything is open source, projects are able to look at what other people are doing and quickly learn and iterate. So, you know, Solana was able to look at what Ethereum did, you know, and, and a number of the newer uh, blockchains that are launching now, like Aptos and Sui are able to look back at what the, the prior uh, blockchains did and learn both in the good and, you know, bad, what, what um, they're really able to see what was good and what was bad and what can be improved and iterate their models. So, 
all that said, we definitely don't have the end solutions fully baked yet. And the demand for throughput on blockchains continues to be significantly ahead of supply. And that is exhibited in the fact that, you know, we've had very high gas fees and things like that. So, um, mm -hmm. no, I think there continues to be a lot of work to be done in that category. And, you know, Ali spends most of his time in that universe. So I'll, I'll let him chime in. But from my perspective, you know, much to do still. Ali, do you think... Um... Does does Andreessen Crypto have a like team wide or firm wide thesis on the right way to build a multi chain world? And and like let's take a couple different buckets here. So like one bucket is okay, all uh, like the future is like L 2s like the future is built on like Starkware and like Optimism and Arbitrum and like that's like ETH L 2s is how crypto scales. Like maybe another thesis is like Cosmos and like the App Chain thesis. Another thesis might be like these alternative L1s and like you've got like Solana and Avalanche and Aptos and Sui and maybe a couple of those are going to win and it looks kind of like the cloud space today with like AWS and Azure and things like that. Does does Andreessen Crypto have a firm wide thesis on uh, on what the world looks like in a couple of years with with uh, regard to scaling? It's a great question. Yeah, and I'm happy to happy to talk about that. So I think, well, first to your first question about whether or not we still invest in infrastructure, we we definitely do. As Ariana said, we I think we have, we have expanded the thesis as opposed to replaced it, and that we still very much believe in our core infrastructure thesis from before. But now I think now that the infrastructure is closer to being able to support all of the kinds of applications that we want to build, we now obviously also have a, a lot of activity, a lot of investing activity at the application layer as well. So kind of our scope has expanded. It felt like in 2018 and 2019, it felt like really we were building infrastructure in a vacuum back then because we, we, we didn't yet have the kinds of applications that we have today that actually stress test the infrastructure and reach millions of, millions of users. Um, and now it feels like we actually have both things. We've got, we've got infrastructure that's still evolving and we've got applications that are beginning to work and, and kind of showcase the way, the way in which developers want to use the infrastructure. So we have like more of a feedback loop going than we than we had before, which is great because I think that that, that is what causes the acceleration of the space as as um, sort of new developers come in, they, they kind of demand certain things of the infrastructure, which causes the infrastructure to improve in the right ways. Um, to your question about how we think the landscape of infrastructure in layer one blockchains or blockchain scalability will evolve, um, we are fairly open-minded to many possibilities, uh, in part because it's just so early and there are so many experiments that are being run and, and it'll be interesting to see how how it all evolves. But but uh, we do have like, I, I personally have, have loose opinions um, about how this, how this might all shake out. So for example, one um, line of thinking is, one, one question could be how many blockchains, how many uh, general purpose programmable blockchains do we think will exist in the long term? And I think that this question is somewhat analogous to the question uh, in the traditional computing world of, of how many how many computing architectures do we expect to exist? Right. And if you look at at uh, computing as, as it exists today, there's there's really just a handful. Right. There's like X64 and there's uh, maybe ARM, but then there's also GPUs and there's just a handful of different kinds of computing architectures that each satisfy different application requirements. Um, and, and that makes sense. It makes sense that you, you would have a handful because there are, you know, games are very different than spreadsheets. And, 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 and so you, you kind of want a handful of different kinds of, uh, of, uh, of approaches to, to meet all of the, the potential kinds of applications that people want to build. And I think it will likely be similar in the world of crypto where we'll probably end up with a handful of different kinds of blockchain ar architectures that land in different regions of the trade-off space and satisfy all of the requirements of different kinds of applications, including again, like things like games, maybe things like DeFi or decentralized social networks. There may be certain applications that require things like privacy. And that's, an, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. And, and there are significant trade-offs you'd have to incur if you want to be able to support privacy. So maybe we have like, you know, five, five dominant uh, smart contract platform architectures in the, in the long run. So I think it'll be, you know, Something like five, it won't be one. It won't be like a, a winner take all, like like the God chain that takes over everything. I also don't think it'll be hundreds or thousands or, or you know, yeah. more than that. Um, and so this maybe gives you a hint as to how we think about something like the Cosmos thesis or the sort of the, the app chain thesis. 
I, I think that um, it's, it's likely that we will have some consolidation, right? That you will have uh, platforms that support different kinds of applications by virtue of being general purpose, as opposed to having every application having to build their own blockchain from scratch. And the reason for that is that there is significant network effects, as we were discussing before, to being on a single blockchain. There's network effects when it comes to security, right? Like that, like having all of the security consolidated in one blockchain or a small number of blockchains is better than having it be fragmented across multiple blockchains. There's also network effects at the de at the developer level, right? Like uh, there's tool chains and programming languages and things like that that encourage people to coalesce or consolidate uh, around a small number of platforms. Same thing with composability, right? The fact that you can integrate with any particular application that's already running on a blockchain, if you choose to build on that blockchain as well, is also a powerful driving force towards having sort of a smaller number of blockchains as opposed to sort of thousands of app chains. Um, so I think that the, the likely end game is, is having a small number, a handful of dominant smart contract platform um, architectures that are fairly general purpose, potentially with things like L2s or L3s, if you kind of get crazy, that, that are maybe more customized and, and that pr provide the special features that different kinds of applications need. So maybe the app chain thesis materializes in L2 as opposed to having mm. thousands of actual like like independent blockchains that somehow have to communicate with one another. Yeah. So we'll stop there, but that's kind of a... No, that's really interesting. I mean, Ariane, it yeah. sounds like you generally agree with... I'm a, I would assume you generally agree with that thesis that we're not going to have a million different chains. We'll have four or five or six different chains and they all have their own built out ecosystems. And maybe some of them are better for some things. Like one is better for finance and one is better for gaming or they're all like, do you generally agree with that thesis? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, sort of economies of scale and network effects in some of these universes where you don't want to have to reinvent the wheel for each chain in terms of having a totally different set of tooling, a to have to learn a totally different language. Um, so I do think there will be kind of consolidation, as Ali mentioned, where people aggregate around certain chains and, you know, they, they might prefer a chain if they're optimizing on one axis versus if they're optimizing on another. I think eventually, hopefully, uh, we come up with architectures that are so good that the trade-off space almost fades it to the background where you're not really having to choose between speed and security and, you know, a number of other factors. Yeah. Um, but that's probably a, a few years out still. <laughs> yeah. Does it ever, um, on that, like, I know you guys are doing a lot of investing in like into the, what I'd call the newer L1s, uh, like the Aptoses and Sui's of the world, which are super exciting and have like these world-class teams building them. And you're already seeing a lot of interesting stuff going on on on, uh, on Aptos right now. Um, does it ever worry you that you don't have like okay? So the initial L1s built these like cult followings, right? Because a lot of and the reason why is probably because a lot of people made a lot of money, like life changing amounts of money, from something like a Solana or an Avalanche. Um, does it ever worry you that you probably won't have those cult followings as much on an Aptos or Sui? Is because maybe the token price is starts out higher. There's a lot of, um, there's pros and cons to launching in each kind of market as far as I'm concerned. So yeah. right now, the total addressable market for some of these newer L1s is a lot bigger than it was a few years ago. And so mm -hmm. it's true, they may be starting off in a different market condition, although crypto is cyclical. So depending on when somebody launches, um, you know, it might be a better or worse time, regardless if it's earlier or later historically. Um, you know, so so they they do, however, benefit from potentially a larger army of enthusiastic users um, who may want to come and use the platform over time. So there is some some truth to what you said, but I don't think it's in any way a limiting factor. And if anything, the the fact that these platforms have been architected specifically with the desire to support millions of users at scale for potentially entertainment and gaming types of use cases, which you know require very significant throughput. Um, they've really been purpose-built for that. And so I think that means there is just more of an audience of people who will potentially be interested in using them and evangelizing them as well. I, I think the only the only thing I would say is um, 
I think there are so many factors uh, to to building the kind of community that some of the successful uh, layer one blockchains or ecosystems have had in the past. And one of them is the token price. And, and in particular, I think it's useful for the for the token price to generally be uh, monotonically increasing over time, because this way every person who enters the community at any point is making money. And then that that kind of catalyzes goodwill and, and it, it makes people happy and it makes them more likely to talk about about uh, the network and to evangelize these other people. But I think there are other things too, right? I, I think that, that um, the developer momentum, the fact that some of these new blockchains support different kinds of use cases, and that brings a new kind of developer, which which is a new kind of community, and they have their own story. They have, they have their own way of, of talking about why crypto and blockchains are exciting. I think all of that will lead to, to movements that will look different than the ones before, but maybe just as powerful and, and just as important. Yeah. Um, Ali, I'm curious how you think about just like, where should value accrue to some of these protocols? Yeah, this is the age-old question, and it's it's one that we I think debate endlessly. Um, there's, a, there's obviously a, back... a ridiculous regulatory component here, which I know you guys are making a ton of inroads on, and you have a whole policy team. But yeah, which which factors into this? But yeah, definitely. I think it goes back to to I think 2017 or 2016. Well, like obviously it goes even back even before that. But there was the the FAT protocol thesis that uh, Placeholder put out a long time ago, well, yeah, which uh, I think is one way to look at this, right? The fact that the fact that there are network effects at the protocol level gives you gives you the ability to argue that value will be captured at the protocol level. But then there is this question of how much value, and and therefore also how much value will be captured at, at other levels. Um, and there's a power dynamic as well between interfaces and protocols where. You could imagine if if the interface layer ends up being very centralized and that there's only one dominant interface that's driving all of the traffic and all of the volume uh, to an underlying protocol, then that that interface, whomever, whomever controls that interface, the company, the, the centralized company that controls that interface, um, has a lot of power over that protocol because they could, for example, easily fork the protocol, create an alternative. Uh, and then drive all of that traffic and all of that activity and volume to to the fork as opposed to the original protocol, and that could therefore sort of move over the fees or you know in, in some way benefit that company more than than it benefits the people who are the token holders of the original protocol that's getting forked. Um, if on the other hand, the protocol has very strong network effects and and it has like countless integrations with a bunch of exchanges and wallets and applications and there's many interfaces and none of these interfaces have a dominant position such that they could they could try to subvert the the protocols um, hold, then uh, you could see how you could see how there would be a competitive dynamic between the various different interfaces that are building on top of the same protocol, and that their fees would therefore kind of be it'd be a race to the bottom and they would be they would be compressed because users would have options they would have different choices for for which interface to use and in that world you could see how the protocol will end up being more powerful and will end up will end up potentially capturing more value. So it, it's very, I think it's it's interesting. I think it, it probably is case by case. It depends on how strong the network effects of a protocol are. Um, it depends on how good the, the, the people who built the original protocol got the protocol integrated and made it an actual movement that has real network effects as opposed to just like, you know, something that they put out there uh, that that is useful, but, but you know, it doesn't have the, the rallying cry and movement behind it that you would need to make it truly defensible. Um, but that's maybe one way to think about it. And I think that there are frameworks from before as well, like kind of the notion of aggregation theory, the notion of, of, of the fact that you, you kind of want um, to either own a particular layer uh, in, this, in the kind of the value chain, or you want to commoditize it, right? Like this, this, uh, there was this great uh, blog post by Joel Spolsky uh, a while back called uh, letter number four. I think it was, it was something along these, like strategy letter number four, I can I can send you a link and then maybe you can include it in the show notes. But it's about commoditizing the complement, right? The fact that uh, any company, want, like the, the most vicious battles in technology or generally in business, tend to be between complements, like the sort of the hot dog versus the hot dog bun, as opposed to substitutes, namely like the hot dog versus the hamburger. Um, and that's because whatever portion of every dollar that gets spent in in a particular service has to get split often between the complements. Like some amount of money will go to the hot dog, uh, mm-hmm. and some of the some of the money will go will, will end up going to the bun, right? And so if you make if you make making buns a commodity such that very little money, very very little profit 
goes to the bun, then more of the more of that dollar will go to the to the hot dog to the sausage. Uh, and then same thing if you think about internet like services like Google, there's like a whole value value supply chain. Um, I think actually Chris has a very good blog post about oh. this, where like you know you follow the user's trajectory. Like you have to you first first use a browser and then you have to kind of type type into a search box and then you eventually kind of go through the whole the whole uh, supply uh, the whole value chain of using Google search. Uh, every every layer there has the potential of of capturing some value and taking some fee. And so if you are Google, you kind of want to commoditize everything you don't own or you want to own it. Um, and so anyway, that's that's I think a framework to think about all of this. And I think it applies to crypto as well. And you, if you if you're like a Uniswap protocol or if you're a DeFi protocol out there, you kind of want the interface layer to be a commodity so that it can't disintermediate you or or it can't uh, sort of compete against you and potentially fork you. That's really interesting, uh, Ariana. I have a question for you on on going off of Ali's idea there about like fo- basically following the consumer and following like um following the value. So so like when I think about the value stack in crypto, you have like three buckets. You have like mining, the base layers, and the applications. So you have like the miners and mining hardware and stuff like that. Uh, then like the base layer would be like L1s, L2s, data layer, and then the application layer would be like maybe CFI, DeFi, payments, NFT marketplaces social platforms, uh, some new stuff coming out with like privacy and identity. Where do you see the most promise um, for just value accrual in the, in the next cycle? Well, uh, as, as Ali mentioned, we definitely talk about that a lot. Um, it, frankly, it's it's hard to pick a specific category because, yeah. um, you know, we've seen hugely successful entities in at each application or at each level of the stack at the application layer, at the infrastructure layer. Um, and I think that's going to persist. Um, so I don't necessarily feel that it's particularly useful. Obviously, I think about this through the investment mindset um, to pick one category and only focus there. So we think a lot more about making sure that we find the best teams in each specific category rather mm. than being super opinionated about this is the right category. Because what we've seen over many years of investing in crypto and beyond is just that it's very hard as an investor to forecast that. Um, and you wouldn't want to have passed on an incredible team because your broader thesis was wrong. I think at the end of the day, the founders and the market will figure that part out. And so we tend to focus more on saying, you know, what are broadly the areas that we think are exciting not being super opinionated about putting, you know, our focus mm. entirely on one part of the stack and instead spending a lot of time making sure that we know all the given players in those areas and so can correctly identify the best teams. All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. USDC's grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you want to learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out their recently published Transparency Hub on Circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to Circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. If you think that the last, so when I think about the last cycle, it was like 
So I kicked off with COVID actually, and then like all this money printing and then like the narrative that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge and then Paul Tudor Jones, Bitcoin's the fastest horse in the race. So like, that was the first one. I was like, boom, all right, Bitcoin inflation hedge, Bitcoin starts ripping. Then we get DeFi summer in summer of 2020. Then we get like NFTs go totally parabolic. And then the cycle kind of ends with this fourth narrative around um, like metaverse and Facebook changes their name to meta and like metaverse stuff gets really exciting. Actually, probably a fifth one in there was like gaming and like play to earn games and the 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 kind of genesis of people getting really excited about crypto gaming. Like when you think about the next cycle, can I pull out some predictions from you guys about where where you're really excited? Is it just like all of those buckets like gaming and DeFi and stuff will be bigger than they ever were in the last one? Or is it there are new things that are going to be really exciting, like Web3 Social and music NFTs? And obviously gaming is like super, super, super early days. But Ariana, can I try to pull some predictions out of you? Sure. Um, you know, one thing I'm excited about is to see the next generation of applications that will be enabled by new blockchain architectures. So for example, we touched on uh, Mistin or their blockchain SWE and Aptos, those chains were specifically built to support a high, high volume of uh, transactions. And that is necessary if we want to think about gaming, entertainment use cases for millions and millions of users. Those kinds of numbers haven't really been possible so far. So I think a lot of the creativity at the highest level of the stack has been somewhat limited by the fact that you really just couldn't run these applications. So now what we're seeing, I think, is a lot of really strong talent being attracted to those ecosystems because all of a sudden you can glimpse the opportunity where you could actually run a game of the same caliber of what we've seen in Web 2 in terms of graphics and things like that on a blockchain. So mm -hmm. to me, it's not necessarily only a new category, but it's the next evolution in that category. Um, so, you know, I think I think that's one thing that's definitely on the horizon. Hmm. Reminds me of this um, Union Square Ventures piece uh, that they wrote. I think it was Danny Grant and Nick Grossman wrote in 2018. It was the myth of the infrastructure phase. And everyone mm -hmm. thinks you like, what do they talk about? It's like the uh, usually actually apps are invented before infrastructure. So like with light bulbs, right? Light bulbs were the app here. They were invented before there was an electric grid. You didn't need the electric grid to have light bulbs, but you did need an electric grid to have like broad consumer adoption or like planes, right? Planes are the apps. Those were invented before there were airports, which were the infrastructure. You didn't need airports to have planes, but to have broad consumer adoption of planes, you did need airports. So it feels like that's kind of what you're talking about, Ariana, which is, uh, you have some of these apps, you don't need amazing infrastructure to build them um, or like games. Uh, you don't need amazing infrastructure, but now to have them go mainstream and to have millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people to use them, you really do need this baked out infrastructure. Yeah. And I think to go a layer more specific, for example, if you look at kind of the initial cohort of Web3 games, most of them we're somewhat limited in terms of how actually on chain they are because of some of these architectural limitations. Like you couldn't necessarily run the entire game logic on chain because it just wouldn't work. Um, now, I think, again, with some of these advancements lower in the infrastructure stack, you can think about having a fully on chain game where everything from the graphics to the data to the logic lives there. Um, so yeah, in, in my mind, like mm -hmm. that's going to be a really exciting unlock because of course, fully blockchain based games will have significant architectural limitations because of the, the, you know, the, the traits that blockchains have, but it also unlocks, I think a new type of creativity, the medium imposes limitations, but also opportunities. And so you know, I think that's a, a category that I'm very excited to see develop. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about, go, go ahead, Ollie. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I was just going to just to push back slightly on the, the, the that thesis from USV from before. I think that that it's often true in the world of hardware or in the world of sort of just inventions in general. If you want to invent something like a teleporter, you kind of know very clearly what it is that you want. You want the thing that transports you from point A to point B. And then, of course, the infrastructure comes after. But often with computing is actually the, the opposite, because computing is such a general purpose thing that it's kind of hard to imagine what you would use it for before you actually have it. And I think this, this, this applies to both personal computing, where 
the personal computer existed it, and it was i think like through through um like apple's efforts with the apple one and the apple two and and so on and like kind of with the initial revolution of personal computing people believed that the killer application for a personal computer would be something like managing recipes in a kitchen right and that that that, that would be what they would be used for and that that's that's what all of the advertising and commercials around around personal computers were about initially and I think it's only once they existed that developers got creative and they figured out how to use this very, very general purpose thing for all sorts of inc incredible things. And I think the, the killer app initially ended up being spreadsheets with Lotus 1, 2, 3. And then similarly with mobile phones, it was kind of hard to imagine what the killer apps would be as well until you had the app store, you had the iPhone and the app store, and then people invented a bunch of new things that would have been hard to see um, a priori. And then in retrospect, it feels obvious, but I think that like the infrastructure really had to be there for those things to be even remotely possible and for there to be an ecosystem of creative entrepreneurs who then explore the idea maze and then discover those things and go build them. And I think it's similar with blockchains where, where I think as you, as you unlock more um, computational capabilities, that will inspire a new generation or a new class of entrepreneurs who now see that it's possible to do certain things that they'd be interested in building that, that they would previously just not even, not even bother considering because it would feel so out of the realm of possibility that they wouldn't even begin to think about those ideas. So it's interesting to think like once you have say a thousand X more performant blockchains, that just expands the design space so much that, that I think we'll just be surprised, right. By the kinds mm -hmm. of applications that people build. Uh, and it's very, very hard actually foresee them because we'd be trying to outthink an entire ecosystem mm -hmm. of entrepreneurs um, by trying to predict. Yeah. That's a really good yeah, point. I, I yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, sometimes there's also an interplay between the two. So to give a concrete example, the Dapper Labs team back in the day, the day being 2017, <laughs> launched CryptoKitties, which obviously, you know, broke Ethereum, basically. There, were, there was yeah. too much demand for cats on the blockchain. And mm -hmm. so the fact that Ethereum could clearly not support that was one of the key factors which led the same team to build the flow blockchain. So in that case, you had this application as a direct result of the limitations of the infrastructure that was available at the time, you got this next generation of infrastructure, which then to Ali's point breeds, I think, even more opportunity for developers to come in and, and build creative things from there. So mm -hmm. I do think there's kind of a, a back and forth. That's a good point. It also reminds like non non crypto stuff. It reminds me of um like Uber and Snapchat and things like and things like that. It's yeah. like by by putting a GPS into a phone, you were able to get Uber and Lyft, right? By putting a camera into a phone, you were able to get Snapchat. And there's no way you could exactly. predict Uber and Lyft. By That's right. It, it wasn't immediately yeah. obvious, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um You got you guys have uh I mean Andre one of the things Andreessen's really known for is like building teams that help portfolio companies, right? So you have like a research team and you have a really great policy team and you have like the legal team and the engineering team and, and you help your portfolio companies that way. One team I'm curious to get your guys' take on is the governance team. Um, obviously coming out of like DeFi summer, you see, you saw a lot of DAOs really taking off and like this idea of the DAO really kind of came back after the, after DAOs had had maybe a quiet period, a little bit of a lull. Um, what is your, what's like, what does the governance team do, I guess? And what, I mean, they're obvious, I, I like, I see them, I see them participating. I see them actually really impressively delegating to a lot of groups that I really like a lot of like a uh, university blockchain clubs, which is just a really cool thing. But like, how do, how do you guys think about governance and delegation and like your role over proposals and like how active of a role of VC fund, not even a, a 16 Z, but like how active should a VC be in governance? A very broad question there, but curious to get your take. Maybe Ariana, if you want to start. Sure. I think on-chain governance is super important because if we believe this theory that blockchains and networks are going to be a significant way in which, you know, applications run, parties communicate with one another in the future, um, having a diverse and decentralized group of stakeholders who are participating in the advancement and governance of these protocols is super important. So we view ourselves as just one participant of many in each of these protocols. And we think it's very important that you have kind of a, a, a again, diverse set of participants who can each bring their own perspective. Um, I think a, 
a well-run network is one in which you have different types of stakeholders who are contributing different things and bringing different perspectives. Sometimes our delegates vote against us. That's totally fine. That means the system is working as intended. We just want to make sure that people are informed and engaged, but you know, they may not agree with us on a given proposal and we think that's totally fine. So, you know, we want to be a voice. Obviously we have opinions on things, um, but we also think it's important that that many other members of the com community are able to kind of bring their perspectives also. Yeah. What, what's your thought on DAOs in general? And like, I feel like we got overly excited about DAOs and now folks are like cautiously optimistic about DAOs. And there are a lot of great companies that are kind of in the same bucket. Like you look at like, Maker, Lido, and uh, Flashbots, like all doing great things in DeFi. Maker, super, super DAO-y, I would say. Uh, Flashbots, very centralized, like a centralized, though pretty flat organization. And then like in the middle is like Lido, right? So like, how do you think about whether or not a DAO makes sense for a, a, a brand, an organization that you've invested in? Like whether or not they should go DAO, I guess. Um, well, I think one of the... One of the trends has been that the word DAO has become so generic and, and applies to everything to such a degree that, that it's it's hard to, to know what it even means. I, I guess so for, I think product, we, for product DAOs specifically, like not like not like NFT, not like a fund DAOs or not like a constitution DAO, but like for product DAOs, like the Aves and Uniswaps of the world, the people building products, I, I guess I would say. Yeah, completely. So I think, uh, I mean, one thing that is very exciting is that because of the way the technology works, you can use it to build new kinds of coordination structures, right? And then I think any kind of coordination structure that brings people together and enables them to collectively make decisions or allocate resources um, or do something productive in the world is what is known as a, as a decentralized um, autonomous organization. So that that is a DAO. Uh, and what's very exciting is that the design space is very, very broad, right? So in the traditional world, because of the limitations of just you know, having to having to instantiate something in the world as a legal entity, like an LLC or a C corp or something like that, and having to get people to to coordinate with these extremely ar archaic um, legal constructs, there's only so much you can do, right? This, it's very hard to get creative um, with how you structure an organization. It takes very very long to run any kind of experiment, um, and and so as a result, that you. You don't learn very much. It takes takes a long time to to kind of discover new new uh, innovative and effective structures, because software is so much more efficient. The fact that it's a it's a thousand or a million times more efficient to just launch a smart contract to to write some software and deploy it on the blockchain than it is to and it, than it is to say pay fifty thousand dollars in legal fees to set up a, a legal entity. I think the rate of experimentation is much higher. And you've started to see some of the interesting initial structures, like the most obvious structure would be one token, one vote, right? If you, if you have, if you have a, a stake, token stake in a protocol, then you get to participate in the governance of that protocol and you get to vote proportional to your stake in any governance proposal for that protocol. And this would apply to any of the kinds of products that maybe you were thinking of, Jason, things like Uniswap, Compound, some of the DeFi protocols, or things in the NFT world like board apes and also layer ones, right? Like layer ones in some cases also have governance that that is controlled by by token holders. But I think that is the very beginning. I feel like this will lead to a kind of golden era of experimentation. And you're already starting to see it. Like for example, Optimism has this kind of bicameral structure where there's two kinds of stakeholders and there's a system of checks and balances. And you can imagine sort of getting very creative as to what the mechanism looks like and what the incentives look like to make sure that it remains decentralized and to make sure that the community gets together and it's representative of everyone and not just of the people who have the most money. Um, so I'm excited that this might lead to that kind of golden era of, uh, of, ex of experimentation for like different economic models, different governance models, uh, different sort of game theoretical models, and that those would be actually testable. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we will very quickly start to learn what works well and what doesn't. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of maybe, maybe a broad mm -hmm. characterization of the DAO so kind of world. So optimistic on DAOs and experimentation outside of just regulatory arbitrage. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely. It, yeah. it brings down the barrier to creativity. And I think that's a very good thing. Yeah. Um, talking about creativity, I want to maybe think ahead to the next, some some of the big ideas in that, that I think are on the horizon for maybe the next cycle. Things like uh, the next iteration of NFTs, like music NFTs, um, 
Ariana, I really want to get your take on just like what's going on in gaming right now because I'm kind of removed from that world. Um, yeah, like music, obviously metaverse stuff is super interesting. So maybe we can start touching on some of those pieces that like touch at the intersection of like crypto and culture, I might say. Um, Ariana, can you just give us like a, maybe we could start, those are really big topics, like a state of the union for like crypto gaming maybe. Um, and just like what what's going on with crypto gaming today? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I think we had this initial wave of Web3 games that really kicked off a movement. Um, Axie Infinity, I think, was was really the catalyst there. And they have since gone on to become the largest blockchain game. Um, but I think it's really just the beginning for that category. One of the most important things that I think Axie pioneered and that now has been unlocked for the rest of the ecosystem is this idea of play and earn games. And that actually returns to my earlier point where the core crux of the business model in Web3 is that the members of the community are also participating in the upside. And it's not just the game maker or the platform who is benefiting from it, but also the members of the community who are actually playing the game and generating the value. So I think this was like a super important paradigm shift and something that we're still really just in the early innings of, of interpreting and incorporating. To me, it seems obvious that if you look a few years down the road, most games will have Web3 models. It, it, I don't see why, as a player, you wouldn't want this. And I think mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that people are against it or, um, you know, come out negatively on it, they really just haven't understood it properly. Because if I'm a gamer, why would I not want to participate in the upside of the value I'm creating? It's just, it's it's beneficial for me. It, it makes the most sense. It's fair. It's obviously better for consumers. So to me, it's silly to even have conversations about whether this model is going to stick around because it's obvious that it will. Now, of course, you have significant headwinds from the existing gaming industry because they have made billions and billions of dollars with the existing model where, you know, they're purely extracting value from the players and not really giving anything back. Um, but I think that, you know, eventually, number one, some of them will be pressured to adapt to this model. And number two, there will be new entrants, Axie Infinity, but, you know, dozens and dozens of others who will launch amazing experiences where you're not sacrificing fun for you know, participation or anything like that, but you can have like a, a amazing game experience that incorporates the web three pieces as well. So I think that's sort of part of where we're heading. Um, right now, we're also seeing, I think a lot of work being done to refine economic models. Obviously managing game economies is super, super hard. And the first wave of you know, folks who launched Web3 games didn't all get it right. By the way, they're the first who would tell you this themselves. And so they're very actively working on iterating these models, figuring out what are the sinks and faucets in each game economy, meaning what behaviors release tokens to the users versus where do users pay tokens back in to like breed something or, you know, mint something. Um, and figuring out how to keep these economies balanced, which by the way, is very hard. It's not dissimilar to managing real world economies. And we all know that's not easy exhibiting the economy today. Um, but I think, you know, in general, it's, it's a really important step for us to understand these levers better because it'll allow us to be more thoughtful in designing game experiences that can have a long lifespan not have hyperinflation in these games, not have people there for the wrong reasons, um, but also, you know, just be really fun to play. Yeah. What, what about on the NFT side of things like music NFTs and kind of like the next iteration of NFTs? I'm just curious. I don't know if this is for Ariana or for Ali. Just curious to get your guys' take on that. I'm happy to talk a little bit about music NFTs. Um, music seems to be one of the one of the categories that's most ripe for disruption with something like crypto in part because it has been hostage to a small number of record labels for so long. And the power structures in that world have 
remained constant for, for decades as a result. Um, I think an actual fairly shocking stat is that there are currently something like 8 million artists on Spotify. And of those 8 million, only 14,000, which is less than, it's like 0.02%, um, make more than $50,000 a year, which is barely mm -hmm. a living, which just goes to show like no one actually makes any money on Spotify. No one makes a living on Spotify other than the top, like, you know, 0.02% of artists on the platform. And that is because just the structure is such that it's it's very power lawed, like all of the the streaming revenues of going to a small number of artists, and then so much of it ends up getting ca captured by Spotify and by the record labels. Um, and the record labels have so much so much leverage that it's very hard to sort of try to displace them. And so then I think uh, there's a question like, what is a better model? This is very good blog post from a long time ago by by uh, David Kelly, known as it's, it's called. Uh, a thousand true fans, right? The fact that this idea that if if you can cultivate a thousand true fans on the internet, that you can make a living, right? If if a thousand true fans pay you ten dollars a month, that is one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, right? Which is which is pretty good. Um, so if you take that idea to the extreme and you use crypto to to try to disrupt music with that idea, you you might arrive at something that looks a little bit like Sound.xyz, which is one of our portfolio companies. Yeah which allows artists to upload their music. And the music ideally now is, is completely free, right? You don't have to pay to access the music. Maybe it's a new, a new piece of music that's generated entirely for this new model. And so it has no kind of connection to record labels. It, it now exists on sound and anyone can play it. So you can build a community around the music. And then the interface of sound is kind of like the interface of uh, SoundCloud from before, where uh, if you remember, you could, you could add a comment on the interface somewhere along the track of the music, right? And so it's kind of like a little social experience where like, if it's like, I don't know, like a kind of like dubstep mix, there's like a drop and people like to comment at the drop um, <laughs> and you can have fun with that. And that was a kind of a cool, interesting user behavior back then. And, and sound is actually taking that idea and making that an NFT, right? So you, you buy an NFT from the artist. So the, all of the money that you pay goes directly to the artist, hundred percent of it. Um, and then that NFT gives you the right to comment on the track. Uh, and so maybe there's a hundred NFTs per, per track. And, and that, that is kind of an interesting, an interesting start, right? For how an artist can begin to monetize their true fans. But what's interesting about this is that, is that that's just the very beginning. Because what happens next is that now you have, as an artist, you have this community of people who have bought your NFTs and they're all, they're all on chain. You have an economic relationship with all of these super fans of yours who have bought NFTs. And then there's a question as to, it's an interesting question as to what you can do with that. Maybe you can build like a token-gated chat room where you have to hold one of these NFTs to enter. Or maybe you can have like backstage events at your concerts or any other kinds of creative ways of engaging those people uh, now that you have this much more direct relationship. And so I think it's the beginning of artists being able to connect directly with their superfans and being able to monetize their, their, um, yeah, their community much more directly without having to go through record labels and through Spotify and so on. And already, I mean, you can already see this, like there's millions of dollars, like three, something like $3 million has been earned by artists on sound.xyz. And it's very early. Like the number of artists is very small. Yeah, yeah. Many of those artists have made much more money, many times more money than they have ever made uh, through things like Spotify. Um, so I think that that's an exciting beginning for a future of how music might be monetized on the line and how crypto might enable it. Yeah. I'm with you on NFT on music NFTs, by the way. Like I'm a, I like house music and um, I remember finding lost frequencies really early on. And like my friends and I, there's this house musician lost frequencies. And like, we found them super early on. We're like, at that point, we'd basically give him as much money as we could give him, but there was no way to give him money. It was like, you would yeah, just, exactly. yeah, I, was like, I want to give you money. Like, and I, and I also want to publicly show that I'm betting on you outside of just like posting on my Instagram story. Like, Hey, go check out lost frequencies. And the same thing happened again with, uh, uh, my friends and I love Fred again. And like, I was like, Fred again is really cool. And then like now Fred again is blowing up. And I was like, I saw that guy early, uh, but completely. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I mean, you're, you're totally right. And I think it's, it's cool because it, it does enable what you're saying, which is patronage, right? You want to be able to support an artist you love, but it, yeah. it also goes beyond that because, because it's this collectible thing that is actually worth something. And so there's now a kind of market for that thing. So you could actually end up making money as a result from, from contributing and, and supporting an artist. Um, and you could imagine a whole new role emerging, right? Imagine you being like a kind of music tastemaker, right? And as an artist, you can get funding early on. You can get kind of connected to some of your early fans. 
Um, yeah. And then as a, as a fan, you can actually get to make money. You can imagine making a living out of that, right? So it creates a new whole new market that didn't exist before. I think the biggest trouble that music NFTs are going to have taking off is that they don't have the native distribution of Web2 social. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like, if you look at NFTs, like Bored Apes or like Punks or something like that, they... Um, they became PFPs, right? So like they were shared all, they were the biggest, the best distribution ever for NFTs was that people on Twitter made them their, their profile pictures. Music NFTs don't have that. So I wonder, I wonder how the, you got to put some image together with it. So, but that'll be solved. So um, I guess the last two topics I wanted to get your take on is uh, two topics that seem like the smartest people in the world that I know are working on two topics right now, which is like, or maybe it's really one topic, both zero knowledge proofs and like building privacy into blockchains. That's what the like most gigabrain, like smartest developers I know right now are, are, are most excited about, like building privacy into blockchains and zero knowledge proofs. And I just, I don't even really know my question here. I just want to get your take on like what you're seeing in that space. And if you're excited about it, if it's underhyped, overhyped, like are a lot of people building in it? You like just what are you seeing from, from that space right now? Yeah, totally. I think that that is a very, it's an important subcategory of the space. Um, and I, I would say that zero knowledge proofs are might even be under hyped and underrated, even though they are so insanely hyped and you hear about them all the time now. And that is because they are they are very, very general purpose, right? They're almost like smart contracts. The way that smart contracts were um, in 2014, 2015, 2016, the fact that people were excited by them, they were excited because they offer you this whole new general purpose programming environment that you can do all sorts of interesting things with that has that have special properties. The same thing is true with zero knowledge um, uh, proofs now, where where there are now constructions that are general purpose, and it's kind of like this holy grail primitive for blockchains, because what they let you do is um, is essentially offload any kind of computation that you want to perform to someone else, have them execute it, and then produce a zero knowledge proof that they executed it correctly, uh, and then you just given that proof can become utterly convinced that they actually executed the computation correctly and that is that is like the holy grail for blockchains because if if you actually look at the way that blockchains work today the only way that you get security is by having everyone execute every computation um redundantly every miner every validator every every full node in one of these uh blockchains today like ethereum has to run every instruction of every computation to convince themselves that that everything is working as as intended uh, with zero knowledge proofs, you could actually completely change the game. You could make it so that only one node, only one miner or validator has to actually run the computation. And as long as they generate the zero knowledge proof, everyone else just has to verify the proof and get convinced that the state was advanced correctly. Uh, and so that has dramatic implications over how you would architect the blockchain. Like now that we have these primitives, you can imagine going completely back to the drawing board and architecting a blockchain in a way that's radically different from the blockchains from before, um, leveraging the fact that you now have this magical capability mm -hmm. that could lead to much greater scalability, right? It could be, you don't have this redundant um, activity that happens in the network that is what causes blockchains to be so expensive and so slow. Um, so scalability is a big potential upside of all of this. But as you mentioned, there's also the potential for building additional features like privacy. So zero knowledge proofs also give you this, this ability to potentially encrypt some of the some of the activity you can encrypt some of the inputs to the computation you can encrypt some of the outputs um, and there's a lot of flexibility over um, what is exposed and what isn't so it allows you to also build for example fully private um, smart contract platforms fully private blockchains a good example of this might be alio uh, also in our portfolio it's um it's a fully private uh, general purpose blockchain uh, and that is that is powerful. And, and useful, not just because users will care about their personal privacy, which they will, right? I think it's important that that people preserve privacy over their transactions. And I think that that'll, that'll matter. But, but it's also, it's even more important because it'll unlock a whole new region of the design space. It'll allow you to build certain applications that you couldn't possibly build without privacy. Um, and a good example of that might be, for example, might be games. Games that require a certain amount of uncertainty in the game to actually make the game fun um, could be could be like a something like Dark Forest where you just don't have full visibility into the into the world of the game and you could use zero knowledge proofs to do that. You can use privacy um, to do that. 
there could also be applications in the financial world where where you want to maintain certain secrecy over over the transactions in a particular DeFi protocol. And we can go on and, and on. I think there are many kinds yeah. of applications that you yeah. can build with privacy, but zero knowledge proofs are powerful for both of these reasons. They, I think they expand the set of applications you can build and they will also pro- pro- potentially provide the solution to, to the scalability problem in crypto. Yeah. No, I think yeah, that, I mean, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it, feel, it feels like like so. You look at the space right now. Arbitrum and Optimism, both optimistic rollups, now have lo- a larger TVL than Solana. It feels like there's been all this progress in zk tech, but maybe the commercial applications of it are still lagging a little bit. I think that changes in 2023. And then also, you talk to a lot of financial institutions, like they don't want their financial transactions, their inventory data, et cetera, available for everyone. And maybe th- this helps that out too. So. Um, I know we're coming up on time here. Ariana, just curious. Uh, I'm going to ask maybe both you guys the, sa- the same question, just as a closing question. Um, Ariana, maybe could start with you. What what feels, I mean, you've been working in the industry for eight years or nine years now, like uh, uh, just like a really impressive career in crypto. And I think you've seen a lot of, uh, some, some things in crypto tend to like repeat themselves, some of these cycles. Like what, what feels obvious to you right now about where, the industry's going and where crypto's going that maybe others that you think others are missing? Sure. So I think, you know, one thing is the cyclical nature. Um, and to me, you know, we've, we've looked at the data over the years and what we've seen is that there really is a method to the madness in terms of what we call these price innovation cycles, whereby, you know, you have an initial, um, you know, the advent of a new technology, there's excitement, there's enthusiasm that eventually gets kind of overhyped. It gets ahead of real progress, which causes a price correction. Um, An important thing to note, though, is when the prices are rising, what that means in real terms is that it's also bringing in a lot of talent to the space. There's a lot of developers coming in, a lot of builders who are, um, you know, obviously there for the financial components, but also there for the technology. And when the prices come down, what you see is that some people who were there for the wrong reasons end up leaving, but a lot of the builders actually end up staying. And that's the really exciting thing that sets things up for the next wave um, sometime thereafter. It's obviously hard to predict exactly when these things are. So to me, having been in this space for a while, it's funny how these these waves seem pretty obvious i think to to me and us sometimes and yet there's still some whiplash i think from people on the outside looking in so to me you know again the the core motion here is really the fact that the builders are still building and that is the single constant that's been the case for all nine years that i've been in the space and you know i'm just excited to see what the next wave brings yeah it's a great point. Ali, you want to close this out? Sure. Yeah, I think the other the other thing that is, I think to all of us uh, internally now very obvious is the is the kind of the core thesis, right? The kind of this idea that blockchains are computers and they are computers that have this very new capability that has never existed before, which is this ability uh, for developers to write programs that make commitments about their behavior that last well into the future. Um, and that has never really existed, as you put it before, uh, Jason. It's this notion that uh, blockchains invert the power relationship between software and hardware. In the traditional world, hardware has power over software because whomever controls the hardware can change the software or turn it off. In the world of blockchains, is the opposite, where the software creates a kind of network that commoditizes the hardware. And the hardware consists now of just validators or miners or things like that that are paid to contribute computational resources to the network but they don't have any power over how the network works. And that's a very powerful thing. It's very new. It's never existed in computer science or software before. Um, and we believe that there's just so many kinds of applications that you can build with this new kind of computational primitive. And it starts with things like finance. It, start, it starts with, with kind of the, like the most obvious application was Bitcoin. It's a program that makes a commitment that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Um, but that is the, the most obvious and the simplest thing you could, you could possibly do. From there, you can, st- you can start to imagine things like in the DeFi world, right? You can, you can build decentralized exchanges, you can build lending platforms, you can build insurance, you can build options. Um, but then beyond DeFi, I think all of the non-financial uh, applications are even more interesting. Things like decentralized social networks 
where there isn't a multi-trillion dollar monopolistic tech giant in the middle that controls everything and controls who can talk to whom and who gets to follow whom. And instead you have more of a, more of a public network where the, the social graph is something like a p public good and anyone can build on top of it. And you control your own node and your own identity within this network and you choose who to follow and who gets to follow you. And there's no central company that controls everything. Um, so I think like our, our belief is that this new computational paradigm is here to stay. It's extremely powerful. It, it will unlock all sorts of interesting new applications. Uh, and we're only very much at the beginning. And that to us is so damn obvious. And it's kind of frustrating, obviously, to see on Twitter, it's like, oh, well, what's the application? What's the use case? All these things where it's like, well, it, it was unclear what the use case for the personal computer was right at the beginning. And same thing with mobile phones. And, and so I think we, we're seeing a very similar kind of pattern with this new computational wave. And I think it's only becoming increasingly, increasingly apparent. Couldn't ask for a better way to end it. That's amazing. Ali, Ariana, thank you both. We'll, uh, we'll put links to your Twitters and some of the resources we talked about uh, in the show notes. So yeah, look forward to, uh, look forward to continuing this conversation some point, hopefully soon. And thanks again for coming on Empire. Thank awesome. you, Jason. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much. Talk soon.